Welcome to the Matt Morgan Coaching Podcast. The fact that you're listening means you're ready to be inspired and empowered to take your life, love, and leadership to the next level. Hello, my friends. It's Matt Morgan. Welcome back to a brand new podcast. Today, we reach week two of the series, Bent Around World Religions, getting a scientific and historical approach to what the major religions say, like Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And if you missed last time, I want to invite you to go back because we talked about the scientific approach of looking at the cosmos, which is huge. And remember, this whole series was predicated on the notion after talking to so many of my clients who were saying, you know what, we talk about relationship and part of talking about relationship is talking about spirituality. But when we talk about spirituality, gosh, many of us are just anemic in this area, right? We're wondering like, I don't really even have a framework to even be curious or to even know what questions to ask. So Matt, could you give us a scientific and historical framework so that we can just have a foundation, at least like a 101 foundation of what these world religions are so that maybe then that would allow us to begin asking more questions. So that's what this series is focused on. It's not meant to convert anyone, okay? As I said last time, nobody wants to be converted, but everyone wants their life to change. So that's what we're doing. Last time we talked about the cosmos, we looked at the scientific approach to see just how big this universe is, and as a result, how infinitesimally small we are, which then evokes all kinds of questions. How did we get here? Is there a God that created this? Or how did this universe exist? How did our world exist? How do we fit into this world? What is the purpose of it all? And since, you know, 100% of all people die, where do we go? You know, small questions like that. (laughs) And so these major world religions try to create answers to those questions. And today, we're going to unpack the religion of Hinduism, okay? This is quite an interesting one because it's so Eastern. It thinks, looks, acts very different from our Western linear mindset, okay? So Hinduism, you guys, is one of the world's oldest religion, according to many scholars, and with the roots and customs dating back more than 4,000 years. Today, there's about 900 million followers, and Hinduism is, as a result, the third largest religion behind Christianity and Islam. You guys, roughly 95% of the world's Hindus live in where? You guessed it, India. Okay, and unlike other religion, what makes Hinduism unique is that it has no one founder. Okay, that's extremely unique because all the other major religions have a single founder. But instead, also what's unique about it, it's a fusion of various beliefs together. So there's not like a central doctrine or like a Bible put together like Christians have. It's a list of letters that come together. Most scholars believe that Hinduism formed somewhere between about 2300 BC and about 1500 BC, okay? The proper way to say that is BCE, which means before the common era. BC is actually a Christian term before Christ, and AD is Adodomini, which is the year of our Lord. And so scholars today have tried to make it more approachable. So to say BCE is before the common era, and CE meaning common era, okay? Now, the religion started in the Indus Valley, which is actually modern-day Pakistan, but many Hindus argue that their faith is timeless and has always existed. They believe in an eternality, right? And so there are multiple deities, gods and goddesses, making it a polytheistic religion, meaning they worship many gods and goddesses. However, 
there is one primary God that they worship. And then there's a set of three, like a trinity, if you will, of gods. And then there's a list of other ones. There's tons. But let me give you just kind of the main ones that they worship. The first and foremost, if you need to know anything about Hinduism, you got to understand Brahma. As we talked about last time with the cosmos, the God responsible for the creation of the universe and all living things in the world is the supreme God. Brahma. Brahma is the force of all things. So if you don't know any god, if you get any god, this is the one. Brahma is the one. Most forms of Hinduism are actually henotheistic, which means they actually just worship this single deity, Brahma, but they still recognize the other gods and goddesses. And so followers believe that there are multiple paths to reaching this god, Brahma. So hold on to Brahma because we're going to talk more about Brahma in a little bit. But the second god in the trinity aspect of Hinduism is the god Vishnu. And this is the god that preserves and protects the whole universe. And then there's Shiva. I love Shiva. Shiva is the goddess and the god that destroys the universe in order to re- create it okay this is important as we're talking about the notion and thought about time when it comes to hinduism now there's some other ones i'm going to give you four other ones there's lots but just give you some big ones that are really powerful and important for this culture and this religion the first one is Devi, and this is the god that fights and restores dharma we'll talk about dharma in a little bit there's krishna which is the god of compassion tenderness and love there's Lakshmi, which is the goddess of wealth and purity. And then there's Saraswati, which is the goddess of learning. And so these are the main gods and goddesses that you'll find if you go to India, you'll see shrines of as people adorn and worship. Now, let me give you some basic core concepts of Hinduism, okay? Hinduism embraces many different religious ideas. And for this reason, it's sometimes referred to as the way of life or a family of religions as opposed to like a single organized religion. And that's, again, what makes it unique in comparison to the other major religions. And one of the fundamental principles of the religion is the idea that people's actions and thoughts directly determine their current life and future lives okay so hindus strive to achieve dharma I talked about dharma just a minute ago dharma is the code of living that emphasizes good conduct and morality all right so as a result hindus believe in the doctrine of what's called samsara or the wheel of samsara samsara is the continuous cycle of life death and reincarnation. That's right, reincarnation. Life continues. Reincarnation means you die and then you come back in this world as something or someone else. And as a result, they hold fast to something that you've likely heard of and you maybe even believe in, which is this idea of karma. Karma is a Hindu idea and it shows the universal law of cause and effect relationship. So this is huge. You do good things, good things will come back to you, and maybe you'll be reincarnated as something even better. You live a bad life, and maybe you'll be reincarnated as something worse, all right? So one of the key thoughts of Hinduism is this idea called Atman. Atman is the belief in the soul. And this philosophy or theology holds that all living creatures have a soul, and they're all part 
of the supreme soul of the god Brahma that we just talked about. That's the big one. So the whole goal, you guys, of Hinduism is to achieve moksha, which means liberation or salvation. So moksha is the thing that ends the cycle of rebirth to become part of the absolute soul. So moksha in Hinduism, you guys, is actually more of an act of attaining oneness with the creator than it is like a physical location like heaven. Although, you know, that being said, when you attain moksha, you reside wherever the creator lives, which they would say that's the third level of heaven. And so the important thing to understand about moksha is that it's earned, not given. And so today, Hindus, you'll find a Hindu going to worship in what's known as a puja, which is typically their temple. And followers of Hinduism can visit this thing called Mandir, which is their temple, anytime they please. And they can worship in their home if they want. They often will have special shrines dedicated to certain gods or goddesses. And so the giving and offerings is a very important part of Hindu worship. So it's a very common place to practice to present gifts such as flowers and oils to a god or goddess. So if you go there, you're going to see that a lot. And additionally, many Hindus take pilgrimages to temples and to other sacred sites in India. Now, here's a crazy fact of Hinduism that you probably didn't know. You know the swastika? <laughs> You're like, wait, the German Nazi symbol? Yeah, that's actually Hindu-based. The swastika, you guys, is an ancient sacred symbol of Hinduism. And so the swastika actually represents good luck. What? Yeah, it actually is a good thing. Do you know that Coca-Cola would use it in their advertising before 1920s? <laughs> right? Because it's a positive symbol, but later became associated with the evil, you know, that we all associate it with today because of the German Nazi party that made it their symbol in 1920. Now we're like, how in the world did that come? Well, there are four points to the swastika, right? Well, those four points represent their scriptures called Vedas, and there are four Vedas. And each point on the swastika represents each one of those Vedas. We'll talk more about the Vedas in just a minute. But they can be thought of as the four goals of life, okay? So the four points of that swastika are the goals of the whole religion. Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha, okay? Which means Dharma is right action. And Artha is worldly prosperity. And then Kama is worldly enjoyment. And then Moksha, as we just talked about, is spiritual liberation or salvation. So if you're in India, <laughs> you find yourself seeing swastikas all over the place. Rest assured, okay, these are not neo-Nazis ready to take over the world, right? This, they actually had this long before the Germans. And so the Nazis, you know, appropriated the swastika to represent their notion of the Aryan identity where they miserably failed in their understanding of the Sanskrit term Aryan, okay? So the Nazi usage, I mean, they imagined this master race or a group of people known as the Aryan race. You know, they actually physically invaded the Indian subcontinent, right? And so in reality, you guys, the word Aryan means noble and refers to the conduct of people. The Indian people are beautiful people. And it was all about nobility and good luck. Isn't that crazy? And so Hindus revere all living creatures. And one of the big ones that they hold as a sacred one is the cow. So if you're there and you're like, wow, why was that cow just kind of roaming the streets? That is a sacred animal. Food is a very important part of life for Hindus. And most as a result, because they love the cow, guess what they don't eat? beef, right? They don't eat pork. Many are actually vegetarians. And so Hinduism is closely related to other Indian religions like Buddhism, 
Buddhism actually formed out of Hinduism, and so did Jainism and several others. And we'll talk more about Buddhism next time. So the main text that Hindus use, and they value many sacred writings as opposed to one holy book, but the primary text, as I just said, was the Vedas. And those were comprised around 1500 BC or BCE. And this collection of sacred verses is verses and hymns written in Sanskrit and contains revelations received by ancient saints and sages. And so Hindus believe that the Vedas transcend all time and don't have a beginning or end. Now, you guys, probably one of the most famous Hindus that you may have heard of is Mahatma Gandhi. Who is Gandhi? Well, here's what's so powerful about Gandhi. You see, between 1757 and 1848, so not that long ago, the British Empire controlled India. And at first, the new rulers allowed Hindus to practice their own religion without interference. But over time, they end up starting to try to convert and westernize the people. And so many reformers emerged during the British period. But the most well-known was the politician and peace activist Gandhi. And Gandhi was the one who led the movement that pushed for India's independence. And that partition of India actually did occur in 1947. But unfortunately, Gandhi was then assassinated in 1948. And British India was split into what is now known as India and Pakistan. And so Hinduism became the major religion of all of India. So that's the etymology of, and the history of how it started. And so starting in the 1960s, many Hindus then began to migrate to North America, to Britain, and they began to spread their faith, philosophies, and theologies to the Western world, okay? So one of the big things, many religions celebrate festivals, and Hindus observe numerous sacred days, holidays, and festivals that they celebrate on a regular basis. One of them is called the Festival of Lights. Diwali is what they call it. There's a celebration of fertility and harvest. There is a holy spring festival that they celebrate. There is a tribute to Krishna's birthday, <laughs> right? We have one in the Western culture. We celebrate Jesus's birthday, right, in the Christian tradition. There is a celebration of the bond between brother and sister. So that's a festival. And then they have a great festival of Shiva. All right. So these are the big festivals that they celebrate. Now, one more very interesting fact about the ancient Hindus, and that's the caste system. The caste system, you guys, is actually a social hierarchy in India that divides Hindus based on their karma and their dharma, their right action. Remember karma, cause and effect relationship, dharma, right action. So as a result of your karma and your dharma, you then get reincarnated and can even elevate in society or go down right? So all of it's connected. And many scholars believe that these systems date back more than 3,000 years. And there are four main caste systems in prominence, but then there's a fifth that I want to talk about as well. The first one is called the Brahmin, which is the intellectual and spiritual leaders. This is the highest class system there is. And then there's the Shatarias, which is the protectors of public servants and society. That's number two. And then you have the Vyasyas, which is the skilled producers. And then you have the Shudras, which are the unskilled laborers. Now, there's a fifth, and this is kind of the underbelly of Hinduism, which many have a subcategory that also exists as number five called the untouchables. And they are a class system outside of this top four class system considered to be the lowest level of society in their hierarchy. And for centuries, this caste system has determined every aspect of a person's social, professional, and religious status in India. 
you guys, there are people in the United States of America that are physicians. They have their MDs. They are brilliant people. And yet, based on their upbringing, they would be considered in India untouchables. Isn't that crazy? So when India became an independent nation, its constitution actually banned the discrimination based on caste. But today, that caste system still exists in India. It's just loosely followed. And many of the old customs are overlooked. But some traditions, such as, you know, marrying within a specific caste, they are still embraced. You will find people, they call them the trash people. Those are the untouchables. You'll see them living among the trash in India because they still have that today. So fascinating framework around the culture, around the religion of Hinduism so that you can be able to at least understand the framework of where they come from. So that is Hinduism in under 20 minutes. <laughs> we'll see you next time for the next topic, which is Buddhism. Thanks for listening to the Matt Morgan Coaching Podcast. Subscribe below, share it with your friends, and if you want to take your life, love, or leadership to the next level, check us out online at mattmorgan.com.